Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion stops here. Now, if you have been following my work, such as it is for any length of time, I suspect you already know that my favorite saint is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And as of this recording, his feast day is tomorrow. That's the 20th of August. So here we are uh, on the eve of the Feast of St. Bernard. We're going to be talking about uh, the, the saint and his really incredible influence on the church from the 12th century all the way up until our own day. But uh, first, to begin with, I'd like to share some words from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, and this is verses 34 through 38. It almost certainly will be familiar to you. Anyone who wishes to follow me, this is our Lord speaking, anyone who wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very life? Indeed, what can he give in exchange for his life? If anyone in this adulterous and sinful generation is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, there's a footnote that tells us that the Greek word for life can also be translated as soul. So life here is used in a double sense, earthly life and eternal life. And this is true of many words in the ancient Greek, uh, that they have more than one meaning. And the same goes for Latin, which is why St. Jerome um, used the word in various declensions, the word anima in this passage, both for earthly life and for the source of that life, which is to say the soul, which is uh, what gives us life, what animates us, if you will. Now, English, on the other hand, is, a, is another story. And that's why the classic Dewey Reams translation of the passage uh, reads like so. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, why is this distinction important? Well, Let's back up a bit. Uh, Jesus says, anyone who wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So first off, he's saying, you don't get to follow me under your own terms. right? And Mark's gospel was written for Roman Christians, for converts from paganism. And they were not particularly interested in how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of ancient Israel. Uh, now they, but they certainly knew what it meant to shoulder your cross and why you would have to deny yourself in order to do it. Crucifixion, as I'm sure you know, was a particularly brutal form of execution and was reserved really for the worst kind of criminals. And it began with the prisoner carrying his own cross to the place of his execution. And this was symbolic. This was a symbolic act showing his submission to the Roman law. To the, to the yoke of the Roman power. And Jesus used that image of carrying a cross to signify the submission that he requires from his followers. And he's, he's illustrating what is 
well, often heroic effort that is needed to follow him, which means, of course, to keep the commandments and, and to do God's will rather than our own will. And even when that's difficult, even when the, the situation or the future looks bleak, Jesus himself prayed to the Father uh, on the eve of his passion. He says, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But your will, not mine, be done. And then he literally took up his cross. Now, this can be taken to an extreme. Uh, Christ is offering us a divine perspective. He's not against legitimate pleasure. And while it is certainly good to mortify ourselves through uh, fasting, spiritual discipline, uh, uh, following a rule of life, that sort of thing, Jesus does not demand that we go out and deliberately seek pain. (laughs) Rather, he says we should be willing to give up our very life for his sake and the sake of the gospel, not because our life is bad, not because our life is useless. Uh, On the contrary, life is the highest natural good. But we should be willing to give up that life for his sake, because nothing, not even life itself, can compare to what we gain with Christ. He wants us to choose to follow him rather than lead a life of self-satisfaction. To, to stop trying to control our own destiny and to be willingly to be directed by him. And this makes perfect sense because as God, Christ knows better than you or I what life is really about and what's going to be best for us. So what he's asking for is not self-loathing, it's obedience. He asks us to put him on the throne of our lives and to surrender our desire to always be in charge of everything, which, by the way, is never more important than when events in your life seem out of control, uh, which they do for so many people right now, you know, considering what's everything that's going on in the world. But what Jesus wants us to remember in this passage is, is that worldliness, and seeking possessions, popularity, power, this is only temporary and ultimately Useless in the big scheme of things, right? Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Because you can't take it with you. (laughs) Or as he says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So clearly, if you work hard at uh, at amassing possessions and, and gaining popularity and power, you may enjoy a pleasurable life. But that comes to an end. And often as we know from experience, when you least expect it. And what Jesus is asking you is, are you willing to give God, um, that is to say, are you willing to give the pursuit of holiness priority over your own desires? Are you willing to take Jesus at his word that by following him, you'll come to know what it really means to live an abundant life now and gain eternal life in the bargain? Or are you going to continue to follow your own way? Or even conceal your following of Jesus and keep your religion a a private affair? Well, Jesus said in verse 38, If anyone in this adulterous and sinful generation is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, uh, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is constantly turning the perspective of the world upside down. You know, with his talk about first and last and, and, and saving and losing, 
Our Lord is presenting us with a choice. Reject him now and be rejected by him when he returns, or follow him now and be accepted by him then. Yet lots of powerful forces want you to be ashamed of the gospel. They want you to be ashamed of following Christ. And rejecting him uh, it might help you escape that worldly shame for the time being, but it leads to an eternity of regret and shame. So getting back to this distinction of anima as, as life or soul, the reason that it's important is that our mortal life is not the highest good. It's the highest natural good, but not the highest good. The highest good is eternal union with God. Therefore, St. Peter, whose uh, preaching is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, he, he followed Jesus to the point of carrying his own cross, literally, to his crucifixion in Rome. Um, afterwards, St. Mark the Evangelist went to Egypt to found the church in Alexandria. And he also founded the first Christian school there. But he also uh, died a martyr in prison. So clearly, Saints Peter and Mark understood what Jesus meant when he said, he who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. But we have to be vigilant because even holy pursuits can be subverted by evil. You know, consider the, the quote-unquote seamless garment argument in the pro-life movement, that just being against abortion, that's, that's not enough. To be really pro-life, you have to oppose capital punishment. But, but that's not the tradition of the church. And all too often, it's really a red herring to excuse supporting, you know, so-called pro-choice Catholics like, uh, like Joe Biden. Councilor Trent said that to the civil authorities uh, is entrusted power of life and death by the legal and judicious exercise of which they punish the guilty and protect the innocent. And the just of use of that power is not against the, the fifth commandment, but it's in obedience to it. Because the punishments inflicted by civil authority give security to life by repressing outrage and violence. Hence the words of David, In the morning I put to death all the wicked of the land that I might cut off all the workers of iniquity from the city of the Lord. But today we've got prominent voices in the church that say this infallible teaching is no longer valid. That, that the protection of society no longer requires uh, capital punishment because murderers can be imprisoned for life. But, but how many prisoners wind up released for prison and then go on to kill again? And for that many, how many murders take place behind prison walls? The statistics speak for themselves. And the point is that there's no guarantee that imprisonment is, in fact, going to protect society. And further, <clears throat> that that protection is subordinate to the punishment of the guilty. And you might say, wait a minute, if eternal life is the highest good, shouldn't we give the killer every opportunity to repent? Well, it might be argued that a killer who, uh, you know, pursues endless appeals in hopes of getting out of prison is not well disposed to repentance. And on the other hand, as uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson once said, uh, when a man knows he's about to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. The point is, and Benedict XVI made this clear, there's no moral equivalence between an abortionist killing an innocent child and the state executing a condemned criminal. A little bit more on this, talking about the good thief and St. Bernard of Clairvaux when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
we got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, and I just want to call all the people. You know, I've got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. Thirty years old, twenty-nine years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire, fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I so love it out there. In First Corinthians thirteen thirteen, Saint Paul says, "So there abide faith, hope, and love; these three. According to St. Ignatius of Antioch, faith is the beginning and love is the end. And God is the two of them brought into unity. Then comes everything else that makes up a Christian. May God grant that we may attain all the virtues that make for authentic followers of his Son. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here talking about the distinction between uh, understanding the word anima, meaning earthly life, or the soul, and how earthly life is the highest natural good but that the highest good is union with God. And then we were kind of applying how some people misunderstand that, and I was using the seamless garment pro-life argument as an example, that trying to create some kind of moral equivalence between an abortionist killing an innocent child versus the state executing a condemned criminal. Uh, yeah, that there is no moral equivalence, and that Benedict Sixteenth made that very clear. Now, I just, uh, to close this off, I want to think about the good thief on the cross. Uh, in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, it says, One of the criminals hanging there taunted Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Have you no fear of God since you are under the same sentence? In our case, we have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has committed no wrong. Now, did Jesus interrupt him and say, no, 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 you're not getting what you deserve. It doesn't matter what you've done. You know, the death penalty is always and everywhere inadmissible. (laughs) No, obviously, he didn't correct uh, St. Dismas when he admitted he was getting his just desserts. Just desserts, I should say. Uh, On the contrary, the good thief appealed to him 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. By losing his life, St. Dismas saved it. And that's no nonsense. Okay, um, I'm happy to begin our discussion of Bernard of Clairvaux. By the way, I say Bernard, which is the German-slash-English pronunciation as opposed to Bernard, because my French is atrocious, and I don't want to sound ridiculous. And also in my brain, when I hear St. Bernard, I think of the dog, uh, and, and St. Bernard as the, as the saint. Anyway, if you've been listening to me at all for the last 25 years, uh, you know I have a great interest in the Middle Ages, or the, the Age of Faith more, uh, more properly. In fact, the RCIA team at my parish uh, have suggested it would make a good drinking game for them to have to take a drink every time I start a sentence with in the Middle Ages, because it happens quite frequently. Um, no Nonsense Catholic. We've been on for about uh, four months now on Wednesdays with the new format, and I've already talked about the Crusades and the Holy Grail and the Knights Templar and the Shroud of Turin, the Imitation of Christ, uh, devotions that, that started in the Middle Ages, like um, Stations of the Cross and the Holy Rosary, and naturally, we can do uh, a whole show on any one of these topics and have for, on some of them. And even then, you know, uh, one single-hour podcast is, is uh, not going to be enough to do any of them any justice. But I think in today's world, I mean, especially with so many Catholics abandoning the practice of the faith, you've got the challenge of, of radical Islam on the one hand and, and militant secularism on the other. We've got right now this the, the, the devastating effects of this pandemic lockdown nonsense and and the virtual apostasy of so many in the hierarchy. You know, we've got a lot to learn from the age of faith. As a matter of fact, uh, we can't afford not to, and and that's no nonsense. But with that in mind, I want to point out that there is one thing that the Crusades, the Holy Grail, the Knights Templars, the Shroud of Turin, devotion to our Lord's Passion and the Blessed Virgin Mary, the imitation of Christ— um, other medieval topics like the prophecies of St. Malachi and the Divine Comedy, the uh, spiritual interpretation of Scripture, right? the four senses of Scripture, the relationship between faith and reason, um, all those things have one thing in common, one common denominator, and that's St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And, and for almost three decades now, I have been absolutely amazed when I'm doing research on, on one thing or another, even if you know these, these events or topics are things that um, took place centuries apart, it seems like the trail, as often as not, leads back to St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, he was literally the center of the 12th century universe, and he's been almost unbelievably influential on the church ever since. Now, to start with the biographical, St. Bernard was born a, around the year 1090, I, I guess it was, the year of our Lord 1090, in a castle in Burgundy in France, Went to the best schools. He studied philosophy and theology, and uh, his his mother died when he was still a young man. And fearing the temptations of the world, he resolved to become a monk. In the year eleven eleven, at the tender age of twenty, Saint Bernard prepared to enter the monastery of Citeaux. And by the time he left home, he had inspired his five brothers two uncles, and some 30 of his young friends to follow him into the monastery. Now, this gives you some idea of the force of this man's personality. I mean, if he had done nothing else, 
just inspiring that many vocations would have been, uh, you know, quite an accomplishment. But within four years, what had been a dying religious community uh, had recovered enough vitality to establish a new house with Bernard as abbot. And uh, they found a nice little piece of real estate that was known as the Valley of Absinthe, or Wormwood. Okay, so this is, this is not, not a nice place. And um, Bernard, I mean, he was still a young man. He was zealous and, and very demanding, although more on himself than on others. But it took a breakdown of his health to teach him that he should be more patient and understanding. And that's the way God works with us, isn't it? But in a very short time, the valley that was called the Valley of Wormwood became known as Clairvaux, which means the Valley of Light. The poor and the weak sought uh, protection from Abbot Bernard. Bishops, kings, and popes sought his advice. His talent as an arbitrator uh, and counselor became widely known. And more and more, he was lured away from his beloved monastery to settle disputes. Uh, on, on several occasions, he apparently stepped on some toes in Rome, and he was completely dedicated to the primacy of the Holy See. But when he got a letter, I mean, he got like a letter of warning uh, from Rome, and he replied <laughs> that the good fathers there had enough to do to keep the church in one piece. And he said, if, if any matters arise uh, that warrant your interest, I'll be the first to let you know. <laughs> He had a way with words. In the year 1128, uh, he assisted at the Council of Troyes, at which he championed the recognition of the Knights Templar, that new order. And the founder of the Knights Templar was his cousin, Hugh de Payan. And along with writing A Rule of Life for the Templar Knights, uh, Bernard also promoted the singular virtues of their novel military-slash-monastic order and in a treatise that he called De Laude Nove Militiae in praise of the new knighthood. And in the process, he almost single-handedly invented the characteristic features of what we know as the institution of Christian chivalry. On the death of Pope Honorius II, which occurred on February 14, 1130, Valentine's Day, bummer, a schism broke out in the church, and King Louis VI convened a council of bishops at Etang, and St. Bernard, the bishops chose St. Bernard to judge between the rival popes. We're going to leave it up to you. Who's the real pope, Innocent or Anacletus? In 1139, uh, Bernard assisted at the Second Council of the Lateran, Ecumenical Council. Now, around uh, that same time, Bernard was visited at Clairvaux by St. Malachy, who was the primate of Ireland. And they struck a close friendship so much so that, that Malachy wanted to become a Cistercian, although the, the Pope wouldn't allow it. In any case, St. Malachy would die uh, at the monastery at Clairvaux in 1148, attended by his loyal friend St. Bernard, who wrote a biography, The Life of St. Malachy, in his honor. Now, Malachy is also famous for uh, his prophecies concerning the Popes, all the Popes from the 12th century up until our own day. Uh, that's that's another show. Anyway, um, Bernard also famously contended with a scholar by the name of Peter Abelard, and they uh, they debated on the relationship of faith and reason. And that debate was so influential in the way that we understand the relationship of faith and reason today. I, I want to give it its own presentation next week, and I think you'll be especially interested in the insights of Benedict the Sixteenth 
on the impact of this, uh, this famous dispute on the church today. You know, Benedict wasn't pope for very long, but between his many years as the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith and his all-too-brief pontificate, I, he contributed a great deal to the church that has yet to be fully appreciated. So next week, Bernard and Benedict, don't miss it. And speaking of popes, St. Bernard saw one of his spiritual sons elected pope. Bernard of Pisa took the name Eugenius III. And at the new pope's request, Bernard sent him various instructions, which were gathered together and comprised one of his most famous works, which is now called the Book of Considerations. And you might be interested to know that the primary idea of the considerations is that any true restoration of the church has to start with the sanctity of the Pope. So we should probably give that one another look, too. Uh, In the year 1145, after the Muslims recaptured the city of Edessa, Pope Eugenius commissioned Bernard to preach the Second Crusade. His preaching was a massive success. The crusade, unfortunately, was not. St. Bernard died in the year 1153 and was canonized by the church only 21 years later. He was canonized by Pope Alexander III on the 18th of January, 1174. He was the first Cistercian monk to be placed on the calendar of saints. In the year 1830, Pope Pius VIII bestowed upon him the title Doctor of the Church. And although that title had been applied to him unofficially all the way back to the 12th century. He's been called by many titles, the Oracle of the 12th century, Thaumaturgus of the West, that means miracle worker, because he performed many, many miracles, including raising people from the dead, over a hundred people, in fact. Uh, Thaumaturgus of the West. Uh, Quite fittingly, he was called the Arbiter of Christendom because of his uh, talent at mediation. He is known officially as the Dr. Mellifluous, which means full of honey. It's um, in uh, reference to his renowned eloquence. And then a second official title was bestowed on St. Bernard in the 20th century, by Pope Pius XII, who named him the last of the fathers. Now, of course, now we can't do justice to his whole life story in an hour-long podcast, but before we're done, I hope to share some of his just incredible influence on the faith today. You know, I, I mentioned that St. Bernard's my favorite saint, but I don't feel like I chose him to be my favorite saint. I feel like he chose me. Because like I say, uh, every time, uh, you know, everything that struck my heart, everything that fired my imagination in, 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 for decades seems to have uh, been inspired by something that would eventually lead me back to the incredible life and work of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, obviously he was a, an important influence on Cistercian spirituality, but also on the Franciscans, on the Devotio Moderna, that gave us uh, Thomas Akempis, who wrote The Imitation of Christ. Uh, he was very much you know, inspired by Bernard's spirituality. You can also see his influence uh, on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola or the introduction to the devout life and, and many others. And we're going to talk about that, especially how influential he was on popular piety that we still practice today. More on that when we come back. We will return more no-nonsense Catholic after this.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. We've been talking about St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and particularly now I want to talk about his influence on the church, and in one area that he was so influential is Catholic devotions, and by that I mean uh, popular piety. You know, Bernard did write some some heavy theological work, but most of his surviving writing is in the form of sermons, not homilies, even where he, where he talks about Scripture, and then expounds on it and applies it to our life. I think that's one of the reasons that that his uh, writing has remained as popular as it has and as influential as it is. And, and he was so eloquent. Like I say, he's called the Dr. Mellifluous because he was, you know, of his silver tongue. He was so, so eloquent. Many of his homilies were actually just set to music and formed the basis of, of a number of uh, the most beautiful Catholic hymns. Jesu dulcis memoria, Jesus, the very thought of thee. Right? That's, that was one of his homilies. Just last Sunday, when I was at Mass, our choir uh, sang Daily, Daily, Sing to Mary. That's another one of Bernard's. And he also composed uh, some very famous prayers. Um, Ave Maria Stellis, Hail Mary, Star of the Sea, and, uh, and the Memorare. 
Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided, etc. That's a go-to prayer here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We pray that pretty much before every show and before our weekly meetings and so forth. Um, and like I say, it goes back to Bernard of Clairvaux. He also composed a probably lesser-known prayer that's uh, known as the Prayer to the Shoulder Wound of Christ. Now, it, it's related in the Annals of Clairvaux that St. Bernard asked our Lord in prayer which was his greatest unrecorded suffering. And our Lord answered, I had on my shoulder while I bore my cross on the way of sorrows a grievous wound which was more painful than the others and which is not recorded by men. Honor this wound with thy devotion and I will grant thee whatsoever thou dost ask through its virtue and merit. And in regard to all those who shall venerate this wound, I will remit to them all their venial sins and will no longer remember their mortal sins. Now these promises were approved all the way back in the 12th century by Pope Eugenius uh, in regard to this prayer. So listen. O loving Jesus, meek Lamb of God, I, a miserable sinner, salute and worship the most sacred wound of thy shoulder, on which thou didst bear thy heavy cross, which so tore thy flesh and laid bare thy bones as to inflict on thee an anguish greater than any other wound of thy most blessed body. I adore thee, O Jesus most sorrowful. I praise and glorify thee and give thee thanks for this most sacred and painful wound, beseeching thee by that exceeding pain and by the crushing burden of thy heavy cross to be merciful to me, a sinner, to forgive me all my mortal and venial sins and to lead me on towards heaven along the way of the cross. Amen. And um, I, I put that prayer in its entirety It'll be in the show notes for the podcast and on YouTube uh, because I, just, I think it's beautiful and I, I like you know, to promote it. And the, the promises that go with it are, are also very wonderful. And so, so like so many of St. Bernard's things, they were promoted by other people. And so the prayer to the shoulder wound of Jesus is sometimes attributed to St. Gertrude the Great. Sometimes it's uh, um, attributed to St. Mactilda. But I would hate, hasten to note that's really not surprising. You know, and I don't doubt that the shoulder wound of Christ figures in their spiritualities. After all, the prayer and the promises were officially approved by a pope, uh, you know, back in the 12th century. And both St. Gertrude and St. Matilda are known to have been influenced by Bernard of Clairvaux. It's also uh, well known that the mellifluous doctor was devoted to the wounds of Christ. When we read the divine office for Wednesday in the third week of ordinary time, there's a sermon that St. Bernard delivered around the year of our Lord, 1130. And I draw attention to the fact that like the Bible or the imitation of Christ, uh, I think people are drawn to St. Bernard's writings, not just because of what he says, but the way he says it. And the whole reading is several paragraphs, and we don't have time for all that, but I'm just going to share with you the first few lines. He says, Where can the weak find a place of firm security and peace except in the wounds of the Savior? Indeed, the more secure is my place there, the more he can do to help me. The world rages, the flesh is heavy, and the devil lays his snares, but I do not fall, for my feet are planted on firm rock. I may have sinned gravely, 
My conscience would be distressed, but it would not be in turmoil, for I would recall the wounds of the Lord. He was wounded for our iniquities. What sin is there so deadly that it cannot be pardoned by the death of Christ? And so if I bear in mind this strong, effective remedy, I can never again be terrified by the malignancy of sin. Now that's not just beautiful, but I I suspect it may be surprising to a lot of people just how modern uh, Bernard's understanding and presentation of the mercy of God sounds. You know, another devotion connected to Bernard Clairvaux that's kind of making a comeback is devotion to the holy face of Jesus. Now, remember, St. Bernard was born at the end of the 11th century, right, in 1090. And the Stations of the Cross were not popularized by uh, Francis of Assisi until his return from pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the 13th century. So once again, we see, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux ahead of his time. In the fifth Station of the Cross, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus, and his image is transferred to the cloth. Now, this incident in the first century was the beginning of the devotion to the Holy Face. And in his beloved hymn I mentioned before, Jesu Dulcis Memoria, Bernard wrote, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Now, how did St. Bernard see the holy face of Jesus? In prayer, certainly in contemplation. I mean, really all of his genius flows from his, his contemplation. But I think it's interesting to note that the Holy Shroud of Turin was once in the possession of the Order of Knights Templars. And as you already know, St. Bernard was instrumental in, in founding or getting the recognition for the Templars, writing their order, the rule, and so forth. And the first master of the temple was his cousin. Um, but when the Knights were repressed by Philip the Fair, two centuries later, okay, he wrote the rule for the order around 1130, in, in the 1304, some 1314, something like that. They were finally suppressed, uh, and, but on false charges. And one of the false charges laid against the uh, Templars by Philip the Fair was that they worshipped an idol, which was described as a, the head of a bearded man. And this is almost certainly a false representation of the veneration that they paid to the Shroud of Turin. At the time, the shroud was called the Mandilion and was kept folded up in a reliquary where only the face of our Lord was visible. So is it possible that the shroud was the basis for the devotion to the holy face of Jesus? Did St. Bernard himself see and venerate the holy shroud? Now, we can be confident that it was in the hands of the Templars after 1204, but that's, that's after Bernard of Clairvaux died. If they did not possess it before then, or I should say, if they did possess it before then, you know, perhaps uh, that's where Bernard got his, uh, his devotion to the Holy Face. And if they did not possess it before then, it was perhaps their, uh, um, you know, the influence of Bernard's devotion to the Holy Faith that caused them to keep and venerate the Shroud because they venerated it secretly. Now, I suspect we'll never know for sure in this life, but, but we do know that uh, St. Gertrude, who, as we know, was influenced by Bernard of Clairvaux, also promoted devotion to the Holy Face. 
And centuries later, as you may already know, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, and her parents were also uh, devoted to the Holy Face. In fact, that, uh, that was in the 1800s, and it had become, they helped popularize it. It became a popular devotion. And there's a major reason why it gained popularity at the end of the, uh, or during the 19th century. And the reason is that that is when the very first photographs of the Shroud of Turin were taken. Because when those photographs were taken, it revealed that the shroud image is actually a negative image. The image on the cloth is a negative. So when they looked at the photographic plates, when they looked at the negatives of the shroud, there was a positive image, which no one had ever seen. So for those who think that the Shroud of Turin is some kind of medieval forgery... It's well to remember that the discovery of this little piece of information, that that the shroud image is in fact a negative image, would have to wait until the invention of photography, hundreds of years after the end of the medieval period. But I digress. Uh, Another devotion that uh, is connected to St. Bernard is the holy name of Jesus. You know, my wife's dad, God rest his soul, he was the head of the Holy Name Society at their parish when she was a kid. Now, the best-known promoters of this devotion were a couple of Franciscans, Bernardino of Siena and St. John of Capistrano. But the veneration of the holy name was encouraged by the example of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He was the first to use the term holy name of Jesus, and it appears several times in several of his sermons. Devotion to the Sacred Heart, devotion to the holy name, the Blessed Virgin, St. Joseph, to the Guardian Angels, all of those devotions that are popular still today owe a great debt to Bernard of Clairvaux. Now, during the Middle Ages, no writer, with the exception of St. Augustine, was more widely read than St. Bernard of Clairvaux. There have been about 500 editions of his works, and it has been claimed that the entire contents of the Imitation of Christ which has been printed more than any other Catholic book except the Bible. Everything in that is substantially contained in the works of Bernard of Clairvaux. According to Father Christopher Renier, St. Bernard's influence can be seen in the formation of the spirituality of St. Francis de Assisi, John of the Cross, Alphonsus Liguori, Francis de Stale. Every spiritual lighter since the 12th century owes a great debt to Bernard of Clairvaux. Hey, more when we come back right after this. This is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com 
Facebook.com code VMPR live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us talking about the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And... We're talking about his influence on popular piety, and I don't think that there is any area of popular piety where he was more influential than devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. His sermons on the Blessed Virgin amount to nothing less than a complete Mariology. Um, You know, it's interesting that in debates, I mean, people like Luther and Calvin uh, quoted Bernard of Clairvaux when they were arguing with the church and with each other. Uh, he was such a, you know, he's such a respected source. And there was a famous letter that he wrote to the canons of Lyon that has been interpreted by some as evidence that he did not believe in the uh, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, I, I bring this up only because you may have heard about that, and I want to put a, you know, put the kibosh on that now. Father Bruno James, who was the one that translated that um, letter into English, says that there is no evidence that St. Bernard used the, uh, the term conception in the sense that was used in the definition of the dogma in uh, 1854. But in the course of that letter, St. Bernard makes a clear summary of the teaching about Mary, and it's magnificent, and I'm, we don't have time to read it all. But when he gets to the end, he says, and I'm quoting Bernard now, he says, All this the church sings in her praise, right after summarizing everything the church teaches about Mary, beautifully. He says, all this the church sings in her praise and tells me to sing, uh, tells me too to sing. What I have received from the church I firmly cling to and confidently pass on to others. Right, there it is. He says, I confess I am wary of admitting anything I have not received from the church. Right, and there it is. It's like, uh, yeah, I believe everything the church believes, and I pass it on. Saint Bernard was an eloquent witness of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He was an eloquent witness, especially of the Assumption, 
and her position as mediatrix of graces. He called her the mediatrix of salvation. And so clearly did he express the traditional doctrines about Mary. So well did he express his love for her that according to to Father Christopher Renier in his book, 33 Doctors of the Church, he says, um, one can hardly speak of Mary without borrowing from St. Bernard. That essentially nobody has said anything about the, the Blessed Virgin and devotion to her. Nobody has sung any praise or, or you know, that, that he hadn't, you know, didn't get there first. And, and it's just, it is just beautiful. And you can see his love for the Blessed Virgin, especially in the prayers and the hymns that he wrote. Okay, uh, another one of the great spiritual writers and another doctor of the church in her own right, I mentioned in the last segment, is the little flower, St. Therese of Lisieux. And she really shows forth the, uh, the influence of St. Bernard, not only devotion, I mean, she was devoted to the Holy Face and, and, and that, but her little way, which was greatly popularized by Father Paul O'Sullivan, um, shows it, especially in his book, I have a copy of it here, An Easy Way to Become a Saint. You know, the Father Paul O'Sullivan books are very popular uh, since, I think, the 1940s. A lot of people have have read them and benefited from them, and they're very simple. But in An Easy Way to Become a Saint, he has a couple of chapters that are devoted to the love of God, and they are taken, I mean, it's just a, a summary presentation of Bernard's great work, which was called On Loving God. And the beautiful thing about it is that while it's very profound, it's very, very simple. And again, that's why I think that one of the reasons that Bernard was so influential it's not merely that he said profound things, but he said things that people could understand and that people could embrace and that they could then communicate to others because his presentations were so very clear. And while he did write some sophisticated theology, and you know, while he was a systematic thinker, his uh, spirituality and his genius flows primarily from contemplation not from formula, not from uh, reading, you know, what other people had to say about things, but from his own contemplation of the scriptures primarily. And while he was a very, very active man, he was definitely a man of contemplation. And I, I think I'm sure I've quoted this more than once that Bernard said when it comes to the science of the scriptures, he said, everything I learned about the science of the scriptures, I learned in the woods. And my only masters were the beaches and the oaks. Which is to say, he would just he just would go into nature. He would get away from everybody and just contemplate the Word of God, and that is where uh, his insights flowed from. And so, you know, the the important thing, and again, this is um, it's very medieval, and that's why I called uh, one of our segments is called medieval mentality, uh, because uh, it goes back to the Middle Ages and and very profoundly to Bernard of Clairvaux and others as well, of course that the important part of our religion is to become a saint. I mean, that's, that's, that's what matters. That's what, what uh, the gauntlet that uh, Father O'Sullivan picks up in his book, An Easy Way to Become a Saint, is because that's, that's the point of life. That's, I mentioned last week in First Thessalonians chapter 4, St. Paul says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. God, God's will for you is that he wants you to be holy. And that goes back to our Lord, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and so on. It's the, the quest for Christian perfection, 
which, you know, um, as medieval as that is, it was reiterated powerfully by Vatican II as the universal call to holiness, that Christ calls every one of his uh, subjects, every one of his people of, of, of every rank and status to personal sanctity. And that's our goal. And, and how do you become a saint? Where does it start? And it begins, as St. Bernard of Clairvaux told us, with loving God. And it's the, the, the first, the, the simplest, the, the most certain of all the means to become a saint is to love God. There's nothing holier, there's nothing more pleasing, there's nothing more meritorious than to love God. And nothing more conducive to our own happiness in this life. It is the great work of our lives to love God. And we make the act of love. Oh my God, I love thee above all things, and for thy sake I love my neighbors myself. It's, it's the subject of the, of the greatest commandment, right? So, uh, and a simple act of love is of greater value than uh, acts of other virtues, just as uh, a diamond is worth more than many pieces of gold. Love wipes out our sins. Bernard tells us that, that one act of love, one for the thief on the cross, to bring things full circle, um, the promise that he would be that very day with Christ in paradise. Everything we do can be done for the love of God, but those things that we do which are not done for the love of God are worthless. They gain no merit. We can toil for years and receive great praise and, and honor and, and make lots of money and be popular and powerful, but if that work isn't done for God, it won't be worth anything. And as my father Paul O'Sullivan says, you know, a, a poor woman, poor old woman who tells her beads, that's the way they used to say to pray the rosary, uh, an old woman who tells her beads at the church door, bears her poverty patiently and lives a quiet Christian life will have a higher place in heaven than the great statesmen and the clever generals and the famous politicians uh, who direct the destinies of vast empires but do not think of offering their work to God. And the question was, was, is it easy to love God? And the answer to that is, yes, of course it is, because he made us to love him with all our hearts and souls. He is goodness himself. He's done everything in his power to make us love him. You might as well ask, he says, is it easy for a child to love um, its mother or a wife to love her dear husband or one friend to love another friend? He says it's easier to love God because God is infinitely good and sweet loves us uh, tenderly and affectionately. He's our dearest and most loving father, our best and truest friend. It's necessary to realize, or all that's necessary is to realize his goodman. Goodness. The very essence of our holy religion, the first commandment, the greatest commandment, love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, surely an all-merciful God, an all-wise God, would not make the very first condition of his beautiful religion something unobtainable. Makes perfect sense. It's St. Bernard, he's a no-nonsense <laughs> theologian. Now, there are, of course, people, and this is something that's still with us today. There are people who say that they, that they can't love God, that to make an act of love for them, they, they, they feel like a hypocrite. They, they, they say, oh, my God, I love you, but they don't feel anything. There's no emotion in their heart to correspond with that words. And that's, you know, he says, unfortunately, that happens to many. And as a consequence, they lose the means to this, this great um, merit and happiness in their life. 
and lays down four reasons. Why is it that they can't love God? Well, first of all, first and foremost, they don't ask for his help. How simple is that? If you want to love God, ask God to help you love him. Secondly, they don't realize that, that you know, what God is and his boundless goodness and his mercy and his love. Thirdly, they don't understand how much he loves them. And fourthly, they don't realize everything he's done for them. Now, all of that then he goes to, to expound upon in, in detail. But again, and this is a point that I've made many, many, many times and will continue to make until people, um, well, until I, there's nothing left in me to do it, is that when we talk about love, when we talk about love as a theological virtue, and this, I think, is the key to the person who says, I don't feel anything, I can't, you know, I, you know, I feel like a dope when I make an a act of love is that we're not talking about the emotion of love. We're not talking about feelings of, of uh, affection or feelings of, of sentiment. We're talking about an act of the will. To will the good of the other is the, the theological virtue of love. It's not about an emotional feeling. It's not about a sloppy sentiment. It comes from a clear and intelligent understanding of how good God is and to use the will. That's why we make an act of love. All right, so how do you acquire the love of God? First of all, by prayer. Like I said, Bernard was a great contemplative. To know God, you have to love God. Or to love God, you have to know God, rather. So we need to learn about him, and we need to understand how much he loves us. So to love God is to be a saint, and the more we love God, the greater saints we're going to be. And there's nothing easier than to love a God of infinite goodness who loves us personally and intimately and infinitely. And we will love him if in all of our prayers we ask to love him and ask for his love. If we know God, we must love him. Therefore, we must do all we can to know God and fully understand all the wonderful things he's done for us. There it is on loving God in a nutshell for sure. Going to talk more next week about Bernard of Clairvaux and his uh, dispute with Peter Abelard on the understanding of faith and reason and their relationship, and, of course, Pope Benedict's insights on that very important topic. All that and more next time. Uh, And until next time, this is Matthew Arnold. May God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, You can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.